G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and welcome to The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. We asked the Productivity Commission to look at what we can do better, and the Productivity Commission came back and found that the current system is unfair, it's underfunded, and it's fragmented. And they certainly very powerfully make the case that at the moment, access to services is a very cruel lottery. The rollout of the $22 billion National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, 15 months ago, was welcomed by all with hopes it would replace a broken system and improve lives. The project is complex and ambitious, and while thousands of Australians are benefiting from the scheme, many are still not receiving the services and care they need. The NDIS, it's not welfare. It's not a burden. This is, uh, this is not my recommendation. It's not people with disabilities' recommendations. It's not, even, it's not the Labor Party's recommendation. This is a recommendation by the Productivity Commission to make our community, our country stronger, to add to the bottom line. This is a, a positive net to our economy when it's funded. And it was never meant to be a political football. And I think that this is no more welfare than your roads, than rail. This is about making sure that people with disabilities and their families can contribute to the community. The National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, is the largest social reform Australia has seen in decades. The scheme aims to support around 460,000 Australians living with disability. At full operation, disability services funding will more than double under the NDIS to around $22 billion a year, almost the cost of Medicare. The new scheme hopes to reverse Australia's poor track record on disability rights, once ranked last in an OECD study of quality of life for people with disability. In today's episode of The Policy Shop, We'd like to talk about how this policy came to be, the rollout of the NDIS, and whether the scheme will improve the livelihood and quality of life of people living with disability in Australia. Joining me to discuss this is disability campaigner, former chair of the NDIS, and former president of Philanthropy Australia, Bruce Bonahady. Bruce, welcome. Thanks, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. And also joining us is Associate Professor of Public Service Research at the School of Business in the University of New South Wales, Helen Dickinson. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Glenn. So I'd like to start with the history of the NDIS and, and how we got there. This is, of course, an idea with a long history. In fact, the scheme, not entirely dissimilar to NDIS, was due to be debated in Parliament in 1975 when the Whitlam government fell. Bruce, as one of the key architects of NDIS, can you walk us through the history of the scheme and why you decided to get involved? Well, I think after 1975, the idea that insurance would form a solution for people with disabilities just fell into abeyance. Um, the disability sector um, focused on disability rights and in many ways, some great advances were made. But while these advances were happening, there were powerful demographic forces at work, uh, which were leading to people with disabilities leading much longer lives. Their life expectancy was increasing, in fact, faster than the population as a whole, uh, at the same time as the capacity of the community to provide informal care was declining. And in the midst of the advances, uh, there was an emerging crisis where 
even though governments were spending much more on disability services, it just the funding just didn't keep pace uh, with the growth in demand. And I became interested in this uh, in about 2005 when I met a young mother with a child with a disability who asked me, why can't my child get the supports that he needs? And um, that led me to start exploring policy options. And the most significant uh, step for me was that I met with Brian Howe, the former Deputy Prime Minister, now a professorial fellow at the University of Melbourne. And he said to me, stop thinking about this as welfare, think about it as insurance. And my background was in economics and funds management and insurance. And So this made immediate sense. Can, can you tell us about this idea of insurance rather than social security or traditional forms of support? It's insurance in two ways. It's insurance in the sense that every member of the Australian community makes a small contribution. And as a result, those people who need the scheme will have it available to them. And the second uh, aspect that is insurance is that uh, the scheme is designed to maximise lifetime outcomes, minimise lifetime costs, as a fully funded insurance scheme would do, whereas the welfare model really is a very short-term model which seeks to minimise costs over the budget cycle, four or five years uh, at the most. And so the scheme is much better aligned with the uh, needs of people with disabilities uh, and their families and carers. Can you tell us something about the intellectual framework, therefore, for the scheme, how it developed? You've told us that this insight you had from Brian Howe about thinking about it of insurance, but that doesn't get you to the scheme. What's the pathway that allowed the thinking to happen? Uh, well, I think the pathway um, w- was not straight, I guess is the first <laughs> point. These things never evolve. Nation-building reforms don't evolve in, in a straightforward way. Look, I was fortunate to meet uh, an actuary called John Walsh who'd been working on uh, insurance schemes for uh, people who had been injured. He himself is a quadriplegic. And when I asked him about how we might go about this, he said, look, as long as we can get the data, we can do it. And we were then um, both fortunate to be appointed to a group called the Disability Investment Group, which was established by Bill Shorten when he was Parliamentary Secretary uh, for people with disabilities, uh, and that report made a single recommendation that the government should uh, investigate fully an NDIS with a view to establishing it, which then led to the Productivity Commission work by COAG. But there were also moments of uh, great good fortune. So uh, two friends of mine and I wrote a submission to the 2020 summit, which you chaired, and uh, none of us attended, um, but somehow or other, um, this idea um, became one of the big ideas from that summit. In fact, it's the only idea from that summit that's in any way changing Australia. And I coined the term NDIS for that summit. So I think these things require good fortune, they require luck, they require sophisticated policy thinking. But in this case, there were two additional elements. This was a community-led reform. So it came from outside government. And it did two things. It united the disability sector, having been deeply divided, because it became the single claim of the sector. And it also tapped into a deep vein of decency in the Australian community, where people uh, believe that people with disabilities, like all Australians, deserve a fair go. 
Helen, can you tell us something about how the NDIS sits into the broader domain of government policies to deal with social support and why are we getting this now? So um, as we've already talked about, you talked about in in, in your introduction, the statistics about quality of life outcomes for people with disabilities compared to those without. Um, And we know that if you have a disability, you're less likely to work, you'll have poorer health outcomes, you're more likely to smoke, to be obese and a whole series of other uh, sorts of things. So as we've talked about, the National Disability Insurance Scheme was seen as being really important in Australia actually investing um, in disability services and, and doing something about the state of outcomes for people with, with disabilities. So it's a wide scheme in a number of ways. It affects everybody in, in some ways and not just as, as Bruce said because everybody in, in the population pays for it. One of the kind of mantras I guess around the scheme and getting support for it was around the fact that at some point all of us will be affected by disability either because we will experience it personally or or somebody in our uh, in our family or, or friendship group, um, that that's that's the reality of of life. So, only about ten percent of people with disabilities will actually get the kind of funding part of of the NDIS. So, just under ten percent of people with disabilities will receive individual funding to design their own services and support their daily activities um, of life. And then there's another big bit of the NDIS, uh, which is about really supporting other di- people with disabilities and also mainstream society to produce a more inclusive community uh, so that people are, are more welcome in mainstream services, but also are more likely to get into education and employment and those other aspects. When we think about the NDIS, I think there are three uh, key policy aspects that are highly innovative. One is the insurance aspect, so framing this as a, as a long-term support arrangement where we invest in people with disabilities to maximise their long-term uh, outcomes. The second is, as Helena said, that this is about people with disabilities being part of community and making sure that we're not just talking about specialist services, but we're also talking about mainstream services and that the health and the education and transport systems are all inclusive of people yeah. with, with disabilities. And the NDIS is making a major investment in community capacity building through a, a system called Local Area Coordination, which was developed in Western Australia and has had great success in building that local capacity so that quality life is based on both um, enough government funding and good family and friendship support. You know, it's not all about government funding and it's not all about families. One has to get to a point of balance. And then the third aspect that I think is critical is that uh, this scheme does not give the funding to disability service providers. The funding goes to people with disabilities and they're free to choose. And so for the first time, we're harnessing markets to serve people with disabilities. And it's those three things in combination, I think, that make uh, this reform um, so significant and so innovative and increasingly of worldwide interest. Helen, you mentioned around 10% of people will design their own services. Can you take us through that and how that works, how this breaks the pattern of how we currently support disability? So these are individuals who've been identified as having a lifelong limiting uh, disability in in some way. So they're the people who are most severely disabled within our communities meet the criteria for this part of the scheme. 
So uh, essentially what happens is you go through a planning process to start with where you identify the sorts of issues that are important to you in terms of your life, um, the sorts of goals that you'd like to achieve, um, and and through through a planner work through that process of what sorts of services you might need to support that. And essentially a, an amount of funding is made available to you to do that with, and with your planner you work out which services will be used and, and how you'll bring those in. That's, that's done in some different ways. Other people have um, service coordinators who might come into that conversation um, and family and friends will be an important part of that conversation as well. And so you go through this planning process and then you determine your budget that's available to you and then you work to um, decide which services will be right for you to do that. So Bruce, you described this as bringing market principles. Can you elaborate? Obviously in a market... Um, it's much more normal for prices to be deregulated and with price deregulation you get different quality of services and, and potentially uh, much more innovation. I think the issue of pricing needs to be set in the context of what we're doing here, which as you said at, in your introduction, Glenn, we're more than doubling the level of funding for people with disabilities through the introduction of the NDIS. Um, and we're at the same time moving from a system that was block funded, so service providers were funded directly by government, to one where now the individuals uh, have the funding. So you've got uh, very substantial growth combined with major structural adjustment and, in essence, a fixed budget to work within in the sense that no one wants to see the costs of this scheme blow out from the $22 billion. And so when I was chair of the NDIA, we decided that we needed to set prices as a means of ensuring that we could simultaneously manage the growth and manage the structural adjustment. I think the truth of the matter is that the original work, with the benefit of hindsight, didn't pay enough attention to the structural adjustment issues for the sector. This is a massive change. And as a result, I think insufficient resources have been devoted to the issue of structural adjustment. And the accountabilities around that have been quite blurred between the NDIA, Commonwealth government, state government, and their various um, departments. And so I think one of the most critical challenges facing the NDIS is how that structural adjustment is facilitated. Up to now, it hasn't been a particularly big issue because the growth has been relatively modest, but the real growth is now underway. And so facilitating that structural adjustment um, is an essential step and it needs to be done with considerable urgency. And what about the responsibility for the provision of last resort? I think, let me just back, step back a moment. I think when you think about the NDIS and where is it going to work best, it's going to work best with people with disability who have high intellectual function, mm -hmm. who uh, are able to make uh, decisions about control and choice themselves and communicate and actualise them uh, easily. It then works also best where people have strong family and friendship support networks because of quality of life requires both. 
Uh, and it works best in metropolitan areas where there's diverse supply. And the moment you you start to weaken any of those three, then you need to build um, support arrangements to ensure that the scheme delivers uh, on its promise. And one of those areas is what happens in regional, rural, and then ultimately remote and very remote uh, parts of Australia. The agency is able to bulk purchase um, supports. And so uh, it could, for example, enter an arrangement with a particular provider uh, in order to ensure services in a particular area. But it's a, it's a step that I think one needs to take with a great deal of caution, because the moment you uh, appoint someone as the provider of last resort in that area, then no other providers are going to uh, enter, enter that uh, market. But the agency has that capacity. There's also capacity, and I think it's very important, not to just think about the NDIS in isolation, because... When you go to those remote communities, you really need a community-by-community approach to how to build the support. So in some uh, communities, you've got a very well-run, Aboriginal-controlled health and medical service, and you can build uh, on the back of that. In others, it's it's an aged care service. And so um, I think building provider of last resort arrangements is necessary, but it requires quite a careful and targeted response. I think Bruce is right. There's a number of areas, kind of geographically and and service areas, that we can predict will likely be um, underserved because of the nature of the markets that there are. But we're also seeing some others um, emerge at the moment as well, even in those areas that are relatively well served um, by providers. And I guess one of the things that we need to have a careful thought about is probably about the fact that we might be allowing individuals more choice over the services that they choose, but providers also have choice over the individuals that they work with as well. And so there's been quite a few instances recently where people with quite um, high levels of need, they're often people with um, intellectual disabilities and sometimes they have um, behavioural challenges. Providers are saying, actually, for the amount of money that's available for that service, we can't provide what's needed for those. And so, you know, we've seen examples in the media of, of where families are having to relinquish the care of their children because they can't find providers who, who will take with those. Thankfully, they're very small in number at the moment. And I know that, you know, um, that, that the NDIA and Bruce and, and others have been working with different state governments to kind of, you know, to stop those those things from arising. But the reality is that when we talk about more choice, it's not just more choice for individuals with disabilities, it's also potentially more choice for providers as well. And I think Helen's picked up on a really important point. I mean, part of it is... Uh, providers being able to now choose who their clients are. And the last thing we would want to see here is the NDIS only serving people who are less complex. You know, it was brought in um, to serve the people with the most significant uh, disabilities. And so that would be a form of market failure that would need to be addressed. Uh, and part of it, I think, relates to the workforce challenges, you know, which is something we haven't touched on. But the NDIS will lead to seventy to 90,000 full-time equivalent jobs. And it's really important that the people who come and are attracted to working with people with disabilities come with the right attitudes and mindset. And part of that 
is recognising that the person with disability needs to be treated with respect and that they are the ultimate client, even if they are non-verbal. It's important that everyone who's in the NDIS has an opportunity to reach their potential. And so investing in them uh, is also important. And respecting their wishes is also uh, important. So we, we shouldn't assume that people necessarily want to socialise or want to socialise when the care worker wants them to socialise, that, you know, that, they're, that they do have, um, have some choices here. And, and so building a workforce with the requisite um, attitude and then the requisite skill in positive behaviour support or whatever it might be uh, is a very important requirement. And that is clearly lagging behind the pace at which the scheme uh, is rolling rolling out. And the workforce issues are broader than the NDIS. I mean, I, I think that um, in many ways, the NDIS is leading a whole lot of reforms in the sense that it's embedding uh, human services in a long-term framework, it's embedding it in a market framework, and it's embedding it in a rights framework. And if we don't understand that for all of human services and learn from the NDIS uh, and extend it into health and other uh, areas of human services, we as a nation, I think, are missing a major opportunity. Helen, you're involved in a very interesting research project at the University of Melbourne's Social Equity Institute. Uh, it's called Choice, Control and the NDIS, and it goes exactly to the question you raised. What's the experience of people in the system, what is the experience of people with disabilities? Uh, you involve them in every aspect of the study. They designed it, collecting data, writing up and disseminating the results. So when you talk to people, and we're very early into a new scheme, what are the sort of perspectives that are coming to the fore? Yeah, so we thought it was really important to do this work because um, there's quite a few different pieces of research and, and, and lots of stories about the NDIS, about different bits of the system. But we felt that the voice of people with disabilities wasn't in there sufficiently strongly. So we designed this piece of research to really engage people with disabilities in the research, both as respondents and, as you say, as, as co-producers of that work. And uh, in total, we had about 42 people and um, individuals with disabilities and, in some cases, their, their families involved in this research in the Barwon area and, as you say, in very early stages of the rollout. We had a wide variety of different disabilities. So we had younger people and people who were older. Um, we had intellectual disabilities, um, physical disabilities, a whole whole kind of range. And so unsurprisingly, we found really different experiences. You would always do that if you have a really sort of mixed group. Broadly, we talk about it as being in terms of three different groups of people within that, though. So the first group was, this is great. OK, so people said, we got funding for the first time, for things that we never got support for before, we um, didn't get a bunch of support before and now we have access to a lot of things. We had waiting lists before, they've, they've disappeared. This is fantastic, it's really supporting us in our life. We had a group of people who said there's some really good things about it but there's also some challenges in making a reality of it. And there was another group um, who said this has been a real challenge for us. This has kind of, you know, had a really negative impact in some ways on uh, on our lives, despite the fact that it's kind of, um, you know, given us in some cases some more funding and some more um, choice to choose providers as well. 
So when people told us um, about the challenges in those services, often it was things like the planning process uh, wasn't very effective. Um, and we've heard this not just from our research, but from a few different organisations who've looked into this. And and some of this is a reflection of the speed with which the uh, NDIS had to ramp up. So it started in a relatively slow and, and steady way, um, got to about 30,000 people around the country who were signed up to the scheme, at which point there was a lot of negative reporting in the press and a lot of concerns that the um, the, the speed of the rollout wasn't keeping pace with what had been intended of it. So new planning processes were brought in. Some of those weren't face-to-face. They were by phone and things like that. And, and the um, number of people registered on the scheme jumped from being about 30,000 to I think about 110,000 in quite a quick amount of time. And that took its toll on those planning processes for some people. Some people told us it was a more bureaucratic sort of system that they found themselves having to do much more paperwork and were finding the system really difficult to navigate. And others told us that they felt that they weren't being trusted to make decisions about their services. And so there were a couple of kind of examples of this that are in the report. Um, But because the planners have different levels of skill and qualification in respect to disability, often some of them are very reliant on going to other professionals for assessments to decide whether something is reasonable or necessary. So what this can mean is quite small Uh, pieces of equipment or services that are relatively inexpensive, you then need to be assessed by an an occupational therapist or another professional to decide if they're necessary. So it makes it both inefficient in terms of a system, but also makes the individual who's supposedly got kind of choice and control feel like they're not being trusted within that system. Now, to be fair to the NDIA, since we did that research, which was less than a year ago, a number of those items that have been picked up have now actually been um, been looked at and they've changed practices around that. So it is clear that some things are, are being listened to in that respect. I'd like to hear from someone who's a client of the NDIS and who's been closely involved with it. And so we recently spoke to Georgia Katsikis, who's one of the community researchers who was involved in the Choice Control and NDIS study with, with Helen Dickinson. Georgia acquired a spinal cord injury later in life that led to her having partial quadriplegia. Let's have a quick listen to what Georgia says about the costs of the NDIS. How much is your life worth? That would be my answer. I am. Uh, I understand that everything costs money. I do. And I am grateful that the Australian government cares about people and is doing all that it can do. But when I hear someone saying, well, you can't do this because it costs that much, how much does your life cost? How much do your legs cost? My wheelchair is my legs. I can't put a price on that. I think when we speak about cost and money, we forget that we're talking about lives. And there at its core is the issue that the NDIS is seeking to address. Helen, as you look on the scheme, compare it to Britain and think about, you know, we're very early in a long journey, your preliminary reflections? They're difficult to compare in in, in some senses because they are um, slightly different schemes. And I think one of the really sad things that's probably happened in the English scheme is that the cuts to public services that have come about since sort of 2010 
have meant there's been substantial reductions around spending in terms of um, disability services and, and social care in general. So, I mean, it's very relevant in terms of the costs because essentially that scheme has moved from being this is your level of impairment, therefore this is the proportion of funds that you should have available to you, to it has moved to being, well, we understand that this is your level of impairment, this is your percentage of our overall funds that we're able to make available to you. So there have been really significant reductions in care funding and that's led to some real challenges for people with disabilities um, in navigating that sort of system. Australia's in quite a different position, which is, a, is an incredibly good thing. And, you know, the amount of funding that's going into this scheme at the moment is fantastic and absolutely needed to improve disability services and the life of people with disabilities in Australia. I guess the thing that we need to make sure that, that happens is that people don't see what are some of the kind of inevitable teething problems um, around the system as indicating that the overall scheme has failed. I mean, Bruce will will understand this far more <laughs> than I do, but, you know, whenever we do a piece of research into the NDIS and we raise, as you inevitably do with, you know, academic work, kind of positives and, and negatives, the media immediately sees on the negatives and, and want you to sensationalise and say, well, this, of course, means that the entire scheme hasn't hasn't worked and that we should, you know, scrap it and, and start again. And I don't think anybody thinks that that should be the case. But I think what we've got to be able to do is keep up the pace of reform, but also kind of recognise the need to change as we go along. And all while doing that really complex kind of process is remember to listen to the voices of people with disabilities. So people like Georgia and, and what they're saying to us in terms of feedback in the research that, that we did um, for the Social Equity Institute recently, when we asked people, what's the one thing you would say to the minister, uh, you know, with the responsibility for the NDIS if they were sat in front of you now? And 99% of people said, please listen to us more. And I think that's a really kind of compelling thing. And I think that's a thing that can be all too often too easy to miss when we're making really difficult and complex decisions is to forget about the people who are kind of at the sharp end of this system. Thank you, Helen. Bruce, I've watched with admiration for a decade or more as you've steered this extraordinary complex change through. I'm sure you'd be the first to say we've only come a short way and we've got a long way to go. But what happens next? What do we need to see in the long run to make sure this is a profound success? I think what's needed falls into two broad categories. I think the first is, I think, to recognise the extraordinary challenge and pressures that the NDIA is under. This is a nation-building reform. 84% of people regard their experience as satisfactory or very satisfactory. I don't know of any major public policy reform that has achieved and is achieving those sorts of satisfaction levels. I would say at uh, this year's Economic and Social Outlook Conference, the former chair of the Productivity Commission, Gary Banks, he presented a policy scorecard which ranked the NDIS as the single most successful policy program in Australia in the last 10 years. Well, Gary is a hard marker. And um, <laughs> so to have it marked that way, I think, says something very significant about the NDIS. And of course, the Productivity Commission under his leadership played a critical role in the scheme's design and, and development. But having said that, we need to 
recognise the extraordinary opportunity that the Australian people have given us. They have said, we are prepared to fund support for people with disabilities on a needs basis and using a long-term framework which involves investment. I think one critical element is that as the NDIA rolls out the scheme, that co-design and co-production is front and centre. It's important to remember that this scheme came from people with disabilities. It came from the sector. It was the unity of the sector that led to this scheme. You know, this is community and social innovation at its very best. And we need to make sure that as the scheme develops and evolves, that that uh, grassroots involvement in co-design and co-production remains front and centre and that the pace at which this is rolling out doesn't overwhelm that commitment to co-production. And let me say, having been on the inside, it's very easy, you know, when you've got targets to ignore that. And so I think that's a very important element. And the agency will, over the next few years, I think, be fully absorbed by the enormous challenge of bringing in 460,000 people. So we're at 113,000 now. Uh, So there's still a long way to go. And making sure that the supports they receive truly meet that reasonable and necessary definition. And that's an evolving definition as we change our views, as the data is collected, as to what represents uh, best practice. So the review process will be very, very important in order to make sure that the $22 billion continues to be the best estimate of the scheme costs. It's very, very important, I think, in terms of the commitment to the Australian public that they feel that the scheme is well managed. There's so much more I'd like to ask, but for the moment, I'll have to say thank you to my guest today, Bruce Bonhady, disability campaigner, former chair of the NDIA. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks, Glenn. And to Helen Dickinson, Associate Professor in Public Service Research at UNSW. Helen, thank you. Thanks, Glenn. And thank you for listening to The Policy Show. episode of The Policy Shop was produced by Ruby Schwartz and Owen Harsey, with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar, licensed under Creative Commons, copyright the University of Melbourne 2017.